All right, hockey fans, listen up because we've got something special cooked up for playoff season. It's called the Daily Faceoff Playoff Parlay Challenge, and it's going to add some serious spice to your playoff experience. Now, here's the deal every playoff game, you're going to be faced with a handful of questions. It's like your own personal playoff puzzle, and it's free to join. And there are prizes because who doesn't love winning stuff? Daily winners, you're getting hooked up with gift cards. Treat yourself to some nation gear or maybe even your favorite jersey. And for the big dogs, the people who can win an entire round, it's straight, cold, hard cash. We're talking about real dough for your hockey knowledge. So lace up those skates, stretch those thumbs, and get ready to show off your hockey IQ in the daily face-off playoff parlay challenge. Sign up today and play every game day at games.dailyfaceoff.com and prove your puck prowess. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Dropping the Gloves with Tim Wurzberger and John Scott. Tim is back from his vacation. He was flying all over the world. He just gave me a grin, this little smirk. I don't know why, but Tim, how are you? You look a little jet lagged. Yeah, not a vacation. It was a work trip to Virginia, D.C. area. Long day, long couple of days. It's very fun being with the team and doing team building stuff and working together and some nights out in the evenings, but yesterday my flight got delayed six times. There's 30 minutes each time. So supposed to, I was supposed to land in Charlotte at seven. I didn't take off till nine. So long night, a lot of time at the airport, but it was good. How was your week, John? What do you guys do for team building? Cause I'm guessing it's a bunch of tech people, right? Not tech. It's, it's marketing, which I know marketing. there's no difference to you, but um, a lot of creative folks, a lot of like a lot of tattoos and colorful outfits on the team and, a lot of uh, right brain people, um, but it was good. A lot of like problem solving on the team. Like, hey, here's a campaign we run. How do we do it differently next time? And outside the box thinking and everything, all the things you'd hate, probably. Yeah, so nothing fun. <laughs> no, it is fun. And then we go out for dinner and drink all night and socialize. And it's great. Drink all night. That's irresponsible. The, the kids do. I, I was... I left. <laughs> I went to bed. It's so like, different than what, because when you play on a team, you've never been a part of this. You've always done individual sports. That's not true. You, you try to do actually. team bonding before the season. It's important to have a cohesive unit in the room. That, that's one of the most important things that a coach and GM can instill. It's a, it's a good environment. There's nothing worse than an environment where you walk in and you, you, it just doesn't feel welcoming. Sheldon Surrey touched on it last interview where he was saying the Devils had a good environment, Edmonton not so much. So all the different things we would do every year was funny because I bounced around throughout the the league and different teams have different ideas. Like Minnesota, there wasn't much team bonding. You know, you show up and it's just like, hey, here we go. Maybe we went out for dinner before the season. That was it. So as a rookie, I thought that was a norm, but then you go to a different team, say San Jose, where the team bonding was, we're going to go to Lake Tahoe, we're going to rent a house, and we're going to blow it out. 
We're going to do all these cool hikes. We're going to go do these. We're going to rent a boat. We're going to jump off this massive rock. We're going to go swimming. We're going to have a ball. We're going to go golfing. I think they went golfing. I can't remember. But it was just a blast. And we went there for like two nights, three days. And it was awesome. Team bonding. And it was really great. We had a nice, tight group there in San. We stunk. But it was it was a good locker room. And then you go to a team like Buffalo, where we we did a ton of stuff as a team. Like um, Robin Regeer's wife organized this huge remember when um the amazing race was really fun a popular show yeah she organized an amazing race around buffalo before the season so she um went out and did all these different stops she, she got in touch with the buffalo bills she got in touch with the police station she got in touch with a local with a local um dj in town a recording studio she got in touch with the all these different things and so she would give you this clue. And it's like, okay, go complete this task. And you go to the next one, next one, next one, next one, next one. So you'd have to go kick a 35 yard field goal at um, the Buffalo Bills stadium. Then you'd have to go to the police station and you'd have to go on the gun range and hit a certain amount of bullseyes. Then you'd have to go to the recording studio and you'd have to like um, record a rap song, but you'd have to write the lyrics yourself. And you would go throughout town doing all these things and you'd meet up at the end and have a big party. And so it was great. And you get to know the guys I, on my bus. I had me, Tyler Myers, um, Tyler Ennis, uh, Cody Hodson, um, and somebody else. And it was awesome. And you had like, we, we paired off into teams. I think there was four teams, six guys on each team and the wives were involved too, which is very rare. Usually they, they separate the wives. So, which was strange in Minnesota, we would have a team party and it would be all guys until a certain point. And it's like, well, can the wives come? And they're like, because there was a lot of single guys. There was Gabby, there was Miko, there was all the all the higher end guys were all single. So I would go to the party, and once it hit like eleven or twelve, I would leave because the wives weren't invited. I'm like, I'm going home, you guys. Like this is like I'm not gonna, you know, go down that road and ruin my marriage just to hang out with you guys. So yeah, interesting. Different teams, different strategies. You guys just sit at a table and do board games. It seems like where we would go, like we've had teams that done paintball. We've had teams that done different things and it's, it's all really good to kind of grow that camaraderie. Cause you want to feel like you're a team in a tight knit group going into battle where you have each other's back rather than a bunch of strangers who don't really care about each other. Like you guys at your job. Okay. Our team has done top golf and mini golf and all kinds of stuff too. We, that's what we usually do. Oh, okay. how much, how much of like those differences between the teams is because of like organizational differences versus just the leadership style and personality of the captain, like Jumbo versus Koivu? I think it has all, one person. Well, I think it comes from the top to where if, if you're a GM and you want to have these things, I know when I was in like Chicago, Stan Bowman was just a geek, right? He didn't really know too much about having friends because he's just a geek and he was just like very hands off. So no one really liked him. He wasn't a friendly guy. So he didn't care about that relationship in the locker room. Just It just so happened we had like five or six Hall of Famers, so it didn't matter. We were terrific. But other teams like Doug Wilson is a good dude. Like he was just a friendly guy. He liked you know people being friendly with each other. So he that was a priority for him. So I think it... It is a trickle down effect, but then you talk to Ryan Reeves and he's like the party coordinator. So he goes out of his way to organize events. So everybody is involved and you have those guys on different teams, but mostly it comes from the coach or the GM saying, Hey, we want you guys to go out, you know, build this environment. We'll, we'll pay for it. Like in San Jose, they paid for the house. They paid for, we took two buses up there. They stocked them full of, you know, food and beer and stuff while we were there. So we had enough, you know, 
stuff to eat and drink. But yeah, I guess it can happen both ways, but usually it comes from the top, top down, trickle down effect him. You got to have a good leader in order to be successful. It's important. It's very, right. it's very wise. You should, t- you should tell people that. No other questions? Uh, well, how was your week how, otherwise? Oh, I've been, um, so the mad rush for, cause I heat my house with a wood stove. So I've just been chopping wood all week. My buddy just bought a property and there's a bunch of downed trees. So I've just been literally chainsawing wood all week. I'm going to go back today again. And just, so I chainsaw it, I split it, then I take it home and stack it. And so I've done like four cords so far. I want to do a couple more before winter. Cause it's just a panic. You want to get that wood and it's good wood. It's seasoned. Do you know the difference between seasoned wood and green wood, Tim? I don't. What is it? I'm not going to tell you. Um, no, green wood is freshly cut wood. It has a high moisture content. And you don't that want sense. that because when you burn it, A, it burns at a very low temperature. And B, it just is a junky burn. It doesn't kick off much heat. It's wet. It's just yuck. It's not, it's not a good burn. It burns faster because the water boils or something in there. And it just it's, it's just a bad burn seasoned wood the water is all dried out of it the wood is incredibly hard it's not soft it's just perfect for burning it burns at a higher temperature and it burns longer which is great and there's no um, ashes afterward it just burns up if you have green wood you're constantly taking ashes out of the fireplace so season your wood minimum minimum of one year preferably two or three this what i'm cutting now is like three it's going to be a good winner very good winter. But I've been doing that all week. I got my van stuck yesterday up there. It's a mess. My neighbor, my buddy came and pulled me out. And then I get home. Get this. I get home. Okay. I'm exhausted. I come home at 930. The kids are in bed. My wife put them down. Thankfully, she's sleeping because she's already, you know, she was looking after him all day. There's a plate on the table of food. Thank you. Very, very appreciate. I'm hungry. I lift the lid. Nice piece of uh, pork tenderloin beautiful cut it up there's asparagus i'm like great asparagus the kids had cut off all of the top part of the asparagus it was all stems and i'm not talking like a little bit of like there was a good cups worth maybe two cups worth of just stems of these asparagi and i'm like what the heck you guys like all the good part's gone the best part yeah it's the best part and so I ate it, but it was just like eating, like just. But I wasn't happy about it. <laughs> shoelaces, and so I'm like, I'm eating pork and then asparagus stock. It was, it was wasn't great, wasn't impressed, and they were all sleeping. So I had to wake them up and yell at them. <laughs> yeah. And then they had a hard time getting back to bed. It was just the whole night. It was a. Now it look was at a, what you making me eat. Look what you I'm did. like. Are you guys serious? You ate all the good parts, and you leave. It, it just goes with the territory. You know what I mean? Maybe one day you'll you'll understand. But you're hey, living Dad, the bachelor life. The vanquished job, right? It is. It honestly is. But what are you gonna do? I'm gonna go chop some wood tonight, and I'll come home, and I'll get the stalks of the broccoli. They'll eat the flower part, and I'll That's get even the worse. Yeah, it is. It is bad. We've been doing Brussels sprouts lately. It's been nice. I love Brussels sprouts. All right. So what did you think of the survey uh, interview, Tim? I love doing these recaps to get your take on it. Because after a call, I, I just usually have to use the restroom or I'm just like, I'm out of here. So we don't get the recap. What was your take on Sheldon's interview? It was good. He was ready to talk. 
like you know there are guests that come on and they're like they're doing us a favor but sometimes they're like ready to talk and he was one of them and he just had such great stories very well spoken some of these i i don't think i'd heard before so i don't know if he's told them elsewhere or hasn't told them at all one of my um my bigger takeaways was just how these little moments can change everything where like he happened to overhear those two scouts talking about the type of defenseman Montreal needed. And it was like, everything just clicked for him. Right. And you look at his stats, like the next year is when he started breaking out because of what he heard while he was injured. And similarly with, uh, was it at the devils when he was um, working with the coach in the beginning? That was Montreal. Guy Boucher. Montreal, also Montreal. Yeah. yeah. And so like that confidence boost is like, okay, this I'm worth something, you know what I mean? Like he, he sees something in me. I'm going to try to live up to that. And even um, you go and read his Wikipedia page. Like he got, I think this was with the devils when he was pretty young, like he just wasn't in shape and he got, you know, embarrassed for it. And he just kind of needed that kick in the pants. And so those little moments that might not mean a lot in the, in the moment can end up having a big impact. So it was pretty cool to see that. It's, it's neat to see someone overcome that, but there's so many other guys who have been in his situation who have had that potential, that opportunity, but they just don't take advantage of it. I've, I've seen it time and time again, where guys like super skilled, the opportunities there and either they don't work for it, a or B they're just so wrapped up in their own ego where they don't think they need to work for it. They think they deserve it. And I'm like, Oh, why am I not getting this chance? Why don't I get to go on the power play? Why don't I get to be on the second line? What's going on? I'm like, are you the first guy on the ice? Are you working at it? Or are you just sitting there complaining and moaning about it? So it was neat to see him recognize his situation, see what he can do to get better. And he acted on it. It was, it was, it was refreshing. Young kids wouldn't do that these days. I don't want to bring it back to that, but it's very rare where you see someone who admits their fault. He said, yeah, I was partying too much. I was going out. I wasn't putting in the work. And then you could show the the fruits were in his partying. He wasn't putting up points. He wasn't, you know, very valuable to the devils. So they gassed him, let him go. He goes to Montreal. A coach put some effort in. He's like, oh, okay, here we go. All-star. 19 power play goals. 26 goals. I watched the highlights of that season. Every one of his goals is top cheese and just an absolute laser. The guy had a cannon. Like, and he's blowing him by all-star goalies like Patrick Waugh, Jose Theodore, all these like legit goaltenders. Yeah, he's good. It was a good conversation. Mike McKenna, who was a goalie in the NHL, uh, responded to one of our tweets. He said, yeah, Sore put a puck through his jersey when he was with Hershey. Like he put it through because he was just shooting that hard. One of the hardest shots ever, probably. They're certainly in the last 20 years. Do you think he just used, we should ask him, wood stick or did he have a composite by then? I don't know. I think they were all wood still. No. Maybe at the end of his career it was composite. Yeah, because when I was, when I came to the league... The one piece was just starting because I know in college, the big thing was the synthesis. Synergy. Play synthesis. Was it synergy? Well, Easton something. It was a synergy. Yeah. And it was a different because usually you'd have the aluminum stick with the wooden blade. This was the first one with the aluminum stick with the composite blade and everybody's jacked up. And then after that was the one piece. So and that was around 2004, 2005. And he did this scoring around 2006, 2007. So I don't know. I've played with Ally Afraidy in charity games. He still uses a wood stick and the guy's got an absolute cannon. Absolute rocket. He'd be good on the show. He's got some stories. The guy's got some stories. All right, moving on. Some sad news. RJ, one of the best, if not the best to ever do it. A play-by-play man with the Buffalo Sabres. I love this guy. Spent two years with him. I would go back to the Sabres. 
do charity events, do alumni events. Always just one of my favorite guys. He unfortunately passed away yesterday at the age of 81. He stepped away from the Sabres, I want to say two years ago, as a full-time play-by-play announcer. The best that's ever done it. So he will be missed. I was just reminiscing. I actually went and looked at some of his greatest calls, and they they ring in your head, Tim. I don't know if you you probably didn't listen to the Sabres growing up. I grew up. I used to go to the Sabres games at the old auditorium. He was the guy. He was more famous than the players in an age when they had Hashik and Michael Pekka and Pat LaFontaine and Rob Ray and Brad May and Alexander McGillney and Dave Anderchuk. All of these guys paled in comparison to the popular, popularity of RJ. He was just the guy. Everybody loved him. Everybody knew him. He he was the best even at, a, at an advanced age, 75 plus. He was still killing it, sharp as a tack. So he's, yeah, it's a sad day. It was everybody knew it was coming. His his health had dwindled the last few years, but it's um very sad day. I was just I wrote down some of his famous calls. The the May Day when they eliminated the Bruins, Brad May scored. I think they swept them for nothing. That was an incredible call. Pat LaFontaine, the la 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 Fontaine. Like a, the great calls he had, his holy mackerels, his top shelf where mama hides the cookies. Like he was just an incredible, innovative announcer and you'll be missed. So any, any other thoughts on that, Tim? No, so many of these calls, I didn't even realize were him. Cause I remember like before social media, we'd watch highlight videos on YouTube and it was like the la, 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 la Fontaine. Like I remember watching that as a kid. I didn't know that was him. So all the stories come out. He seems like he was a pretty special dude and very good at his job. Maybe the best. So, oh, he definitely was the best, and he was so normal. Like we would have beers on the plane, and he would tell you, I he he was good friends with one of the trainers, Ripper. He was there from the inception of the Sabers as well, and so I would be drinking in Ripper's office, and RJ would come by, and he would tell you your face. He's like, "This team sucks. Like we are awful. Like we got to do this, this, and this," and he would we'd start chewing the fat about the old days and he's just a good dude. Like he, him and Rob Ray were, were good. We're a good pairing together. They were there when I was with the Sabres and you know, it, it was just neat seeing him at the rink. Cause you knew it was just, it was one of those guys who was just the best at what he does and everybody loved him. And he, you know, he'll be missed, but yeah. RIP to him, Rick Jenneret. I'm going to, I don't know. Do you go to the funeral? That's the question. I, w- I was wrestling with that this morning when I saw it. It's like, I don't know. It's, it's going to be huge. Drive. But, but does it mean, does it make a difference if I go? You know, I don't know. We'll see. It's probably going to be in the next few days. I'm supposed to go on vacation. <sighs> so Where are you going? Well, just to Northport. So. But, nice. I don't know. All right. Moving on. Some quick hits. Then we'll get to some questions. Tim has some questions for me. And I got some questions for Tim. Matthew Schneider. NHL defenseman maybe more known for now around the NHL as being one of the higher ups of the NHLPA for the better part of two decades, 12 years. He's been with the NHLPA. I was there when he was hired on and he slowly grew himself into arguably the most powerful guy in the NHLPA. He was around during the negotiations with Donald fair and Donald fair's brother. And it was interesting to see the reactions when he got fired because he didn't step down. He got fired. The new head of the NHLPA, I believe it's Matt Walsh, I want to say. Marty. He, Marty, Marty Walsh. Walsh, excuse me. He's he's brand new. This is his second year in charge of the NHLPA, and he um, he let go Matthew Schneider. And it has to be okayed by the players. So the players okayed this. 
I don't know how to feel about this. Snyder is a, is a good guy, but I will say that they didn't do much over the last 12 years. We pretty much got smoked at the last lockout. The owners got everything they want, everything they wanted. He agreed to outrageous escrows, the salary cap, everything the owners wanted that they got. Um, over the COVID lockout, they didn't do much. They agreed to come back to play, and they just saddled the players with this insane escrow payback where the owners didn't have any culpability. They get all the money that they lost during the COVID lockouts. So it, it he's not a negotiator. Nice guy, Matthew Schneider. Very nice guy. I had many conversations with him during my whole all-star debacle. He was my main point of contact with the NHLPA. So me, maybe that wasn't the job for him. So interesting that the players okayed that and they seem to be happy moving on from him. But uh, yeah, it seems like they got a good one. This Marty, uh, this Marty Walsh, he seems to have the players' best interests at heart. They've been taken advantage of so many times. Alan Eagleson back in the day, Donald Fair, Schneider. There's been a few guys who have just been uh, looking out for number one. I remember when Donald Fair, we were negotiating. He wanted to leave. This was this was his line. He's like, I want to step away. I want to go. I want to just leave you guys in a good spot. He said this for eight years where he's just like, I'm just, I'm just going to be here, put everything in place. And then I'm going to leave. It was him and his brother. I'm like, all right. And he's like, and he kept phrasing it. Like he was doing us a favor. Like we're lucky to have him. And we were, he's a smart guy. He obviously was involved in the MLB negotiations when they locked out. And I think it was 94. So he knew his stuff, but he kept taking a big salary and he kept just saying, I'm going to leave you guys in a good spot. Then I'm going to step away. And he just stuck around year after year after year. And this three-year plan, which he sold us all of a sudden turned into him being there for 10 years. And we paid him millions of dollars and he didn't do anything. He really did just the bare minimum. We lost every negotiation. We didn't get anything of any of the lockouts that we had. And at the end of the day, he did a terrible job. When you look at it, when you just point by point by point by point, we lost everything. And so for a guy who was doing us a favor, we probably paid him $10 million, if not more. And he would just drop these little things, these little like lines to make it look like, oh, he's, he's, he's doing it for us. Like he's like, well, I'm going to meet with Gary Bettman next week in New York. But he's like, you know what? I'll pay for the flight myself. You guys don't need to. I'm like, okay, you're going to pay for like a $300 flight. That's fine. But we're still going to pay you $2 million this year. And you got your brother a job. And we're going to pay your brother 500000 who does absolutely nothing. You know what I mean? So it's just those, it just happened year after year. And we thought we were getting like this great negotiator, this guy who's going to help us out with this. Because Gary Bettman is, is a very, very shrewd negotiator, Tim. He knows what he wants. He has the owners in his back pocket. And he has a hard line. And we just, we, he, he took us behind the woodshed, Gary Bettman did. The only thing we got out of it that had any merit is a pension, which is good, but we pay into the pension. So it's like <laughs> the league doesn't match us very much. So it's just, it's all relative. We, we're paying ourselves basically, but yeah. When you, when you come back from those meetings um, or after even like a monthly call or whatever, how interested are the other guys in your team in getting updates on what's going on? Like, do they ask you or do you update them or they didn't, they just don't care. Just tell me when I need to know something. Exactly. So during the lockout, it was different because 
guys wanted to know because we weren't getting paid. And so I would be involved in the calls and the negotiations. And then I would have to disseminate that information to the players. So I would either send out a text. I would set up a group call with a team. Maybe four or five guys are on the call. Like it just wasn't that important to anybody. And especially during a non-lockout season, we would still have monthly calls where you'd go, you'd get a report of how everything's going, an update, rule changes, what are we going to do, this and that, outdoor games, blah, blah, blah. No one cares. No, maybe one or two guys if they, if they had something that related to them. But like Millsy, when I was in Buffalo, he wanted to know about goaltenders. Like we need to figure out the goaltenders equipment. Like uh, that was a huge issue to him. And, but other than that, like it was, okay, players don't care. They just want to play hockey. That's it. They don't, they, they don't want to sit down and be on a call there. I, I was on hour after hour calls during the, uh, the lockout 2014, I believe it was, it was just, and some of the calls were so maddening. It's just, because hockey players are essentially are not smart, right? They're they're athletes. We're not known for our our thinking. Some and I'm not saying I'm a genius, but I could see what was happening. It was clear as day. Batman's first offer was increased escrow, um, lower the salary cap, know this, know that, know that, and he just like it was the, the worst offer that the NHL could give you. And I remember saying it on a call. I was like, you guys, like. He's moving the bar so far in our direction because we're going to push it 10 feet towards him and, and we're going to feel like we won. But in in reality, he's smoked us. But no one even thought that. They're like, oh, no, like, OK, so he wants a 30 percent escrow. Let's go back with 15. I'm like, you guys are we're, no, like, do you not see what's going on? And I wasn't a negotiator, but it was so clear as day what was happening but the players just wanted to play. They're, half the guys were just like, let's just get back on the ice. We're, we're losing paychecks. Like, let's go. Let's play. It's it's just, it's it's very difficult to talk about because we just got absolutely smoked. And some players who I won't name, but they're just dumb. Like, they're just, and I don't like talking bad about it, but what, like, you got to be honest, right? So anyways. How heavy did the responsibility feel when you were on those calls or representing the players? Well, it was frustrating because it is a responsibility because I have one vote for 23 players and I have to go back and say, this is what we're going to vote. I don't like this deal. Let's vote it down. And you tally up the votes. There's 30 teams. There's 30 votes. and We're going to see how this goes. So it's a little bit of responsibility. But at the end of the day, it all works out. I think we had to have a majority vote to accept the deal. And we got back on the ice and it is what it is. We, we never we didn't get the great deal that we were all hoping for. You know, we went into it. We wanted to control escrow. That didn't happen. We wanted to raise a salary cap. That didn't happen. We wanted to do this, this, and this. And <laughs> this was another, uh, our big get. Everybody got their own room on the road. That was a big win for us. I'm like, you guys, so short-sighted and just like minor. Like the the, the owners probably pay an extra 50000 over the whole season to get like an extra five rooms or 10 rooms per road trip. They make so much more by getting an extra percentage point of an escrow. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's, it's peanuts compared to what they're getting on the escrow. And I'm just like, you guys. And then our per diem, they raised our per diem from $52 a day to like $98 a day. Oh, it's a big win. It's a huge win for us. Like it's absolutely nothing. Nothing. We're talking millions and millions 
compared to thousands and hundreds. Assist. Like we were playing, we were playing checkers. They were playing chess. Yeah. Yeah, that but, sounds frustrating. But it, it was great when you got on the plane and you got your envelope and it was like four hundred dollars. It felt good. You know, oh yeah, you stuck that Gary. Give me that money. I'm like, then you see your paycheck. What's this 19% escrow? I just lost $85,000. Oh, but I got an extra couple hundred bucks on the, on the plane. Players are funny. You know what I mean? It's just, if it's not right in front of them, it doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. It's honestly like, oh, we got our own room and we get a higher escrow. Nailed it. Or a higher per diem. We, we won. We won. Anyways, Jonathan Tate from the Chicago Blackhawks. Everybody thought he was going to f- retire, Tim, except for me. I, I said it all along. I don't think he's done. Everybody and their brother. He's going to retire. He's done. Blah, blah, blah. He just released a statement and he said he's not retiring. He's going to take some time away. He wants to figure out his Ill- illness, get that under control. And then he's going to come back and he's going to resign with the Hawks. Just kidding. He won't resign with the Hawks, but it's good. Johnny Taves is a good hockey player. He's 35 years old. I think he still has some good hockey in him. Last year, he played 52 games, I believe, got 30 plus points. That's not bad. Throw him out there, third line center, Tim. I think it's a, it's a huge win for hockey if Johnny Taves come back comes back don't you think i do but like how how does he really expect to come back he's 35 years old his body's got some issues he's not going to get younger or faster like what i i thought for sure he was going to retire but when you look at his career stats he hasn't played much hockey in the last three years so he obviously has recuperated i want to say in a weird in a weird stance to where he like he played 53 last year he sat out the whole season i believe the year before and like 2021 he didn't even play so he, he's he got some i think hockey years left in him but we, we talked about this a few weeks ago does he ruin his legacy if he comes back he played 15 years with the Chicago Blackhawks, three Stanley Cups, gold medals for Team Canada, Con Smythe, multiple awards. I think he had a couple Selkies under his belt. Does he ruin his reputation and his legacy if he comes back and signs with the Colorado and just tanks and plays terrible and just kind of fades away in an anonymity because he doesn't, he's not the same Johnny Taves that we saw in 2014, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 when he's getting 80 points. First, first line defensive forward of the year. Like, do you think that's a possibility, Tim? And is it worth the risk for him? Not legacy, but maybe like just the 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 memory as he leaves. You know what I mean? Like right now, does a 15-year-old hockey fan, even especially not from Chicago, does he care at all about Jonathan Days? Like no. You know what I mean? Like it's just because he's done nothing the last few years. Not nothing, nothing, it's not his fault. He's been injured and he's been sick and all this stuff. And so he's already kind of faded from memory pretty quickly. And even for me, it's like, I, oh my God, it's Jonathan Taze. This was the guy like for a decade. He was arguably one of the best top three centers in hockey when you look at the complete game, the championships, everything. But already like it's, 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 it's forgotten. You know what I mean? And so I hope that he doesn't come in and go to Colorado or Toronto or whatever and go be a fourth line center a la Spezza and then just not be able to keep up and just not like he's irrelevant, you know? And that's, that's how you remember him when he leaves. Yeah, do you think a guy, and I know you're not going to tarnish Yarmar Yager's legacy, but do you think he has a higher standing if he doesn't, after the age of 35, come back? Because he left when he was 35. He came back, Philly, Dallas, Boston, New Jersey, Florida, Calgary. He plays for six teams in six years. His points are mediocre, but he's playing. You know what I mean? Do you think 
that tarnishes Yager's legacy because he comes back and not embarrasses because he did have good seasons. Like a, a mediocre season for him is putting up 40 points, right? 46 points, but he did bounce around. He wasn't always the top guy. It became kind of a joke as last year in Calgary when he, he wasn't, he wasn't good enough to be in the NHL. No, I mean, I just from watching Yager in 2013 play for the Bruins, like he was just so strong and he could still make plays. And and I mean, fast forward a few years, 2016, he had 66 points. And what is he at that point? The 41? 43, yeah. 43. So no, but Yager's the exception. You can't compare that. Like Taze isn't going to do that. I don't know. I hope he, I hope he comes back and he's healthy. I'm not trying to be negative about it. I hope he does great. Okay. Kale McCarr, cover of the NHL 24 hockey game. Who cares? Are you going to be in that or not? You, you mentioned something. They asked you, right? I said, yes, I signed some contract. So not a contract. I signed a waiver so they can use my likeness. I will get no money from it at all, which is always good. <laughs> yeah. Remember when you made that cover of me in 2017? They were looking, they were asking who's going to be on the cover, the fans. And I think you mocked something up or somebody else did. Someone did. I didn't. Yeah. It was really fun. Yeah. I, I, I should have known. You would never have had that creative. I hadn't met you yet. I still hated you. I still didn't like you back then. What a dude. Okay. Jeff Petrie traded from the Montreal Canadiens. Just got traded to the Montreal Canadiens as a part of the Eric Carlson deal. He's going to Detroit. Did not expect this coming. I thought he was going to go to Dallas. Stevie Eisman picks up another big defenseman to go along with Ben Sherratt. And who else did he pick up? They got a big backhand. Oli Mata. Oli Mata. There was one more guy he picked Hall. up. But anyway. Taylor Hall's playing defense? No, Justin Hall. Justin Hall. Hall. Oh, how does he just, just ruin this deal? They got Mo Sider and Jake Wallman, who I love. Those two guys are great. Then you got Sherratt, Petrie, Hall, and Gosses Bear. This defense is funny. NHL defenseman, what do you think of this trade? Jeff Petrie, 35 years old. He is a good defenseman. Decent point getter. He's he's good for 30 a year, I would say, if you give him some opportunities. Second line power play guy. Good pickup for the Red Wings, Tim? I mean, it's fine. It's solid. You know, he can probably still run a power play unit. He can still log some solid minutes. I, I'm i almost embarrassed to ask, but like, I, what's the deal with him in Montreal? Does something happen that I'm just forgetting? Like, why don't they like him and why doesn't he want to be there? I can't remember how it ended, but yeah, there was a messy ending in 2021-22 where he was just, they hated him. They wanted to get rid of him so bad. So I, I don't know what happened. But I'm sure there's a story behind that because when he got traded from Pittsburgh to Montreal, everybody and their brother knew he wasn't going to stay because the organization just hates him. And the fans don't like him. They're like, they're all pissed at him for something, but I don't know what it is. Someone yeah, me. They're, they're, they're passionate. Let's call Kirby Doc, friend of the show. With the addition of Jeff Petrie, does the Detroit Red Wings, do they, do they get into the playoffs this year? They got to bring it. They get Petrie. They bring in JT Comfer. They get Christian Fisher. They bring in Daniel Sprong. They have a decent lineup. They get uh, Shane Gossespierre, Justin Hall. There's NHL players all over this roster, like veteran NHL talent. On the back end, they got Billy Hustle, good goaltender. They bring in James Reimer to be his veteran backup. What do you think? Are they going to get into the playoffs this year, Tim? No. Who are oh. they going to pass? Buffalo? Okay, the Bruins. Pittsburgh, Florida? The Bruins, no. No. They're not a playoff team. Not yet. Not yet. I think they might. I think they might surprise some people. They got a decent first line, Larkin, Debrinkit, Raymond. 
serviceable second line, David Perron, who everybody hates, but he always puts up 70, 80 points. JT Comfer, decent third line. Andrew Kopp still got some good hockey in him. They're good down the middle. They're going to be fun to watch. They're going to be better than they were last year. Last year, they were pretty uh, pretty bad. Very They regressed last year after their exciting year two, two years prior. All right. Why do you even put this on the agenda? I don't even... David Krejci retired. Okay. Um, questions, Tim. Unless you want to talk about David Krejci more. Yeah. Do we have like 15 minutes for me to just... No. Like I'm monologue. so finished with the Bruins. Bergeron's retired. Krejci's retired. They're going to be bad. Not All right. Good. You know what they did get? They did sign that kid from the Arizona Coyotes, the the good college forward. His name yeah. has escaped me right now. It's a it's a big get for him. This young kid coming out of college decided to forego signing with the team that drafted him in the second or third round, the Arizona Coyotes, and he signed with the Boston Bruins, which is a huge get for them because this is a good kid. His name is John Ferranici. Signed a two year deal. It's a good pickup for uh, Boston. He's a center. He's going to hopefully fill one of those slots that's left vacated by Bergeron or Krejci. So big, big news for the Boston Bruins there. Not speaking so big of, for the Arizona Coyotes. Yeah, speaking of Arizona, I meant to say one of my coworkers I was talking to the other night was is, lives in Tempe. And so I, I kind of mentioned like, oh, a lot of drama there with the rink and everything. And she like knew a lot about it. And that, and she, I said, did you vote? And she goes, I said, yeah. She said, yeah. I said, did you vote against it? She goes, absolutely. We all did. So I was like, okay, like what, why? Like what, what, what did you, what didn't you like about it? And she basically said the way that it is, and she described it quickly, was just like that area already is really bad with traffic. And there's like a 10 mile stretch where like there's only one main access road. And this is without like the rink and the shopping center and the restaurants that they were going to develop around it. They just did not have the infrastructure and all the residents would have been miserable and hated it. So like basically everyone voted against it. And she's like, I I hope that I hope it's I hope they do it eventually. But it made no sense where they were trying to do it. So speaking of women, um, Shout out to the lady who came up to me at the Northern Michigan uh, State Fair. I was with my kids. I had the six girls with me, not the youngest one. And she's like, hey, I just want to say hi. I love your show. I can't, I never caught her name. But yeah, that's the one of the first times I've been recognized for the show, not my hockey career. So it's kind of cool. <laughs> Old, nice older woman, too. Probably my my mom's age. Very surprising. I love it. Yeah, I love it, too. You Have you ever been recognized, Tim? Uh, yeah, once, but kind of a joke. So okay. not really. All right. Okay. Fine. Just say no. All right. Questions, Tim. It looks like we have nine or 10 questions and you said they're fighter superlative questions. What does that mean? Superlative? Yeah. So this is almost like, almost like yearbook question, but I want you to answer from your experience, not from like, like fights for people you fought. So you can't say Ty Domi had the hardest head or whatever, but I'm going to just talk just from your own experience fighting in the NHL or minors. And there's like 10 or so questions here. Um, the first one, hardest puncher. Do I have to be honest or can I lie? You can lie. I don't no, lie. Be honest. You never want to lie. That's not good. Hardest puncher, um, Matt Karkner. He would always point. in a fight. I fought him three times, two or three, maybe four. He would come with the hardest first punch um, of anybody I fought. Maybe there are harder punchers and I never got hit by them. And he would connect every time on my jaw and it would hurt. He hit me once in the back. I shouldn't say jaw every time. He hit me once in the jaw, once, twice in the jaw, and then once in the back of the head. And boy, oh boy, they hurt. And I knew they were coming too because you scout. And I'm like, Matt Karkner, he starts with a huge, heavy bomb. Be ready. 
and I'm not smart when it comes to fighting. So he would throw that punch and I would just eat it and then continue the fight. It was the guy hands of cement. Unbelievable puncher. Who was the best at blocking punches? Rocky Thompson. He was the first, maybe people don't know the name. He was a old time fighter, long. He's a coach now, I want to say, for like an AHL team. But he had long, greasy, disgusting hair. He always wore a nose strip before nose strips were a thing. He would put about a pound of Vaseline on his face. And I fought him, and he was the first guy who would block his face with his left arm. So I would try to be punching and he would put his arm up to block my punches. And I'm like, what are you doing? Like, we don't, this isn't, this isn't something hockey fighters do. So he would always do that. And it was frustrating because it worked. And I'm like, I don't want to throw punches with my other hand. So what are we going to do now? But yeah, you would hear this guy, Tim, from half a rink away coming at you to try to hit you. He, I don't, maybe that's why he wears the, more the nose strips. He would be grunting across the ice when he was four checking. Cause I was a defenseman and he was a four. And I'm like, I wouldn't even have to look. I'm like, Rocky Thompson's coming because I can hear this. <laughs> I'm like, holy cow. Like this guy sounds like he's in labor. And sure enough, there's Rocky Thompson huffing and puffing across the ice, his greasy hair flopping in the wind. And you would pass it. You would take a step. You would leave your stick. In the way, he would trip over your stick and go face first into the boards, and you would laugh at him. You go, there you go, dummy, break your neck. And I would do it every time. And he still wouldn't learn. And he would try to bury you every time. That's what I would do to guys who would try to run me along the boards. I would step out of the way, and I would leave my stick there, and they would trip over my stick. I'm like, that's what you get for running me. I'm going to break your face on the dash or the boards. Are you Googling Rocky Thompson right now? Yeah, I've never heard of him. Really? Well, he's maybe a, I have, but I don't know. He's like an him. underground tough guy that everybody who fights knows about just because he's a tough, and he wasn't big. He was probably six one. Tough, you tough know, guy. Played, played around. Uh, yeah. Only leagues. 25 NHL games. No points. So you're better than him at hockey. But well, yeah, I um, hope so. The guy's like a <laughs> fire engine on the ice. <laughs> but he probably, he played like probably 300 AHL games. So yeah. he's all over. Okay, who was the I most? I always talk to people too because I people your your friend asked me for advice one time, and this happens quite a bit. They're like, I I got an option to play in the Southern Junior Professional League, or I'm going to go play in this and that and that. Playing that many games is not a feather in your cap. You know what I mean? I played a thousand games in the A. Maybe now it is when you can make a, a decent amount of money. Back then, like the highest salary in the AHL was maybe sixty thousand, and Rocky Thompson was not making sixty thousand. So good on him for playing 300 games. That's probably over how many seasons, Tim, though? Eight? Yeah, 10. 10? You're not making much dough. It's like, just cut the court. I know you love the game, but it's time to go. And I've told so many kids this. I got an offer to go play uh, in Northern Ontario. I think I'm going to take it. I just look at them. They're young kids, 18, 19. I'm like, just stop. You're you're not going anywhere. Like, what's your end game here? Just to keep playing hockey, then you're going to wake up and you're 26, 27. You have nothing to show for it. Busted face and limbs and joints that are just creaky when you're 30 and you have no money in your pocket, no education. I wish I would have talked to Rocky Thompson back in the day. I should be a life coach. I really, I really should be. Just give up. Give up your dreams. Get a job. Not give up. Refocus. You know what I mean? Stop living in la-la land. 
Can't be like me. I'm perfect. Try to be like someone else. All right. A lot more questions here. Most aggressive fighter. Most aggressive fighter. That would be the guy who just comes in and starts throwing right away, right? Oh, See, or reckless. Speaking of reckless, probably Joel Recklich was was an aggressive fighter who I tuned up in with the Islanders. Yeah, he might be one. I was a different case because people were very cautious when they fought me because they thought I was just this tall murderer. So they come in and even big, big, tall guys like uh, Ratis Evenons and David Kochi uh, and Peros, who were I. You know what? It's probably Fraser McLaren. He would he would chuck him. I I liked fighting Fraser McLaren because we'd go toe to toe, and he wouldn't back down. You know who I was surprised didn't fight me? I asked to fight him a lot was um, Bordalo from Colorado. My height six seven. I was very him and Brian McGratton were the two guys who I'm upset that they turned me down. I, I really wanted to fight both of those guys, and they both turned me down. That so. was one of my questions. Who who turned you down the most? Was that McGratton? Sustito. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Sustito. I jumped him one time in preseason. Or he jumped me in preseason from behind, and that was it. And I asked him to fight many, many times after that. But yeah, Bordalo would turn me down. Colton Orr turned me down a bunch after he um, punched me in the stomach, and I went down. He turned me down every time after that. Um, yeah, McGratton, those guys. Okay, opposite of the aggressive question, who was the most careful fighter? Or maybe even conservative? Cam Jansen. Just because of sheer size. He's going to hate that. What's the uh, truth? He would wait and wait and wait until he got tired. Then he tried to throw one looping right that grazed my chin. And then he won the fight. Well, he's pumped the brakes camp. Like I fought him a bunch of times too. Good fighter for his size. You know, he's working. You can kind of play with the card you dealt with. The guy's six foot. So I'm six, eight. I have a big time advantage and he did well against me. This might be the same answer as the best blocker, but could be other reasons. Who's the hardest to land a square punch on? Um, Morasti. Oddly enough, because he would hold his head in there, but he would, he was, maybe I shouldn't say him because he, he, he was so short. It was hard to get a good punch on him. I'll say that because you're punching down. I didn't like it. It was just, it was awkward. The hardest to land a punch on. Yeah, probably Jansen too. Those guys and maybe Rocky Thompson, just because he was just blocking everything. But yeah, the shorter guys, I hated the fight. I really didn't enjoy it. Give me a guy who's six eight, all day. Best pound for pound for pound fighter that I fought. Yeah, that you fought. Well, or probably, or DJ King. <clears throat> DJ King was tough. He didn't get the recognition he deserved. People were scared to fight that guy. Like he was very. Google DJ King fights. There's not many. It was tough. Hardest head. Morasti probably go watch spend spend an afternoon going watching John Morasti fights the guy never made the show but he is a legend when it comes to hockey fights like he him and his cousin Jeremy Yablonski were the two biggest meatheads to ever step foot on the ice when he played in the HL again for what 10 years in Syracuse like he was hardest head ever he he must have CTE like his whole brain must be just CTE when they operate on him when he dies, it'll just like be stamped on his head, CTE. It's it's amazing how many times that guy's been hit in the head. You watch his fight versus Steve McIntyre, and it's just incredible how many times Steve hits him and he doesn't go down. It's incredible. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Tim, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this might be 
I don't know how exactly how I want to word this, but the best at positioning, who was like the best technically sound fighter? Probably Brandon Prust, just because he had to be. He was so good at tying you up and wrapping up arms because he was like he was fighting over his head. You know what I mean? And I only fought him once, broke my hand on the glass. Looping right. He just ducked. He just buried my hand right in the glass. But um, yeah, Prusty was very good. And then Kevin Westgarth was pretty good too. Not that guy. Buried him. But yeah, those two guys were good. Two more questions. Best uppercut. Well, uh, Max Domi. He's the uppercut guy, but I never fought him. Max is good at uppercuts when the other guy is not fighting. (laughs) Um, Nobody threw uppercuts on me. I never, I never put my head down. Yeah. Never once. I've never been hit with an uppercut. Okay. Last question. You already said who turned you down the most. Who did you turn down the most? I've only turned down two fights in my career. Steve McIntyre in San Jose preseason. I was like, are you nuts? I'm not fighting you. And Jody Shelley. In we had just scored. We were in the offensive zone face off. I was lining up. It was in San Jose. Oddly enough, both of these fights. I was the home team versus Steve and the visiting team versus Jody Shelley. We had just scored. We were up one nothing. We were in their zone. I was in Minnesota at the time. Or maybe he was the visiting team and I was the whole team. I can't remember. We win the draw. Goes back to Bernsey. He rips a shot. Hits me right in the ankle. They go down and score. I should, I should have accepted the fight. But usually, typically, you're in the offensive zone. You just scored a goal. You're not going to fight. You got the momentum. There's very few times as a fighter you get a face-off in the O zone. It's usually neutral zone. So you're like, I'm in the offensive zone already, baby. Let's go. And I got Brent Burns on the point. I'm like, let's try to score a goal here. Sure enough, they go down and score. I'm like, damn it. Never again. So I, I didn't turn him down very often. But those are the two. And I regret one of them. I don't regret turning down Steve McIntyre. I might not be sitting here if I fought Steve McIntyre. Guy's scary. How many fights have you turned down, Tim? That's a question I want to know. On the ice or off? Off both. How many times have you been propositioned for a fight? Let's get let's get real here. Um, honestly, twice. Both the same day, both the St. Patrick's Day parade in Southie in Boston. Just everyone's drunk, and was, we lived on off the parade route, like one block. So it was kind of like an open house, and there's just guys drunk, and I was kicking people out because they didn't know them. They didn't know anybody. of your house. Yeah. And they were like eating our pizza and drinking our beers and just like talking to people that like, I'm like, you guys got to go. Who do you know here? No one. All right, go. <laughs> no. Like, oh, I know, I know Bobby. I'm like, who's Bobby? You know, <laughs> and then they were like, well, do you want to fight? I'm like, no, just get out. That was it. That's, that's as close as I got <laughs> coming into a fight. Have you ever been punched? Uh, yeah. Yeah. With the glove on in hockey, probably. No, that same day. That's, <laughs> that was that's a, a tough day, Tim. Yeah, but it was funny day, but uh, similar thing where he just, he shoved one of my buddies um, and he was just, he was blackout. Like he was just like eyes glazed over. He wasn't there and he wouldn't leave. And then, but he was just surrounded by my friends. So he tried to throw a punch and someone like, as soon as he lifted his arm, someone just ripped him over and he just sort of clipped my chin. And then he got dragged out by some big rugby players. And you woke up the next day. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> and you saved everybody. Yeah, <laughs> you live a crazy life. I don't uh, think I can handle it. The Southie sounds too. Was Ben Affleck around or Gronk? No, but this is like this is like a couple blocks from where uh, Knuckles grew up. It was pretty close. The old Boston Irish neighborhoods. Crazy man, you and Whitey Ford, Whitey Bulger. Yeah, yeah, just killers. Me and Matt right. 
Yeah. Mad Matt Damon. <laughs> All right. Anything else, Tim? Any plans this weekend? Gonna chop in wood, man. We're going up to Northport Sunday. So I'm gonna pack up my whole system here. I'll record from Northport for the next three weeks. I think we're gonna go. Nice. So I, oh, it'll be nice. I'm gonna come to Traverse City next month, I think. So I'll let you know. We'll we'll get together. We'll get the gang back together. Right? Have a great weekend, John. Thanks for listening. I will. You you got any plans this weekend? You got a date? You, you ask me. You know, what's the dating life like lately, Tim? Uh, it's good. I got some plans this weekend, so. What does that mean, plans? You got a date? Two. Two dates. Same girl? No. <laughs> different girls. Two How different do you do that? How do you juggle so many women? You know, it's it's a it's a learned skill. It's very it's a practice skill, you know. Is your biggest fear going on a date with somebody while you're seeing somebody else and running into them? Like how is that a possibility in your town? I wouldn't go on dates while I was seeing somebody else. But you're you, so first, you got you you have two dates. They're both but, first. So what? They're both first dates. But so what if you hit it off on Friday tonight or tomorrow with the first date and then you already have a scheduled date the second night? You go out, you run into that girl who you went out the night before with. You see her and you go, oh, hey, Becky, oh, this is, and then you ruin both because they think you're a player. Yeah, yeah I can ask over that. I just try not to make, try not to let it happen, you know? Have you ever ran into an ex while you're on a date with somebody? Yeah, Traverse City all the time. There's not that many people and not that many bars, so it would happen. Do you think you date too many women? When are you going to settle down and stop living this lifestyle? Whenever I meet somebody. No, You've no. met plenty of women. That's true. Listen, a marriage isn't meant to be fun, okay? You're supposed to be miserable. <laughs> That's how you know she loves you. <laughs> you want someone who's judgmental and mean to you. That's the key. <laughs> I'm just teasing. I love my wife. All right, Tim, we'll have fun with those dates. We'll, we'll do a recap on Monday and see how it goes. And maybe we'll have Brady Kachuk next week. He kind of uh, didn't, didn't happen. Tim was working. So I, I blew him week. off. That's where I'm at. Are we going to get him next week? Do you think? Yeah, he said. He said, "Yeah." All right. Well, we'll talk to everybody next week, and hopefully Brady will be here, and we'll talk to. It's like a love connection. I feel like Chuck Woolery. We'll recap your dates and see how it goes. You don't know love connection? No. Is that like YouTube, a seventies thing? YouTube love connection. Chuck Woolery. It's cool. Like they sit on a couch. They have a guy or a girl. She gets to pick between three guys. She goes on a date with one. Then they come back and they recap it on the show. They talk about it. And then if they, they had a good date, then they get to go on another date. If they don't have a good date, she gets to choose from the other two guys to go on a date. It's a gr- I love the show growing up. Yeah. Check it out. But it's, I feel like Chuck Woolery. Is that a Canadian thing? Canadian no, show? It's, it's, it's American. Maybe we should get the girls on the show. Now, that would be very Love Connection-esque. If we could get a Zoom call with the two of them, I would, be, I would be down for that. Yeah. yeah. Same time? Okay. The only issue would be I feel like they would fall for me. <laughs> yeah so yeah, it wouldn't work for you enough. yeah i remember when i was in the ahl we were all eating dinner with the young kids and someone was on like there was a chat a, a local chat you could be on. i don't know what it was like a, a reddit thread or something the guys wanted to go out and party and there was a thread of like i don't know where we were but one of all the things were the only one worth going out and seeing is john scott all these other guys are losers and I was at the dinner table with them and I was like, that's a tough break, you guys. And they're like, can you please come out with us? I'm like, I'm going back to the hotel room. But I just boosted my ego to no end. That these random like girls in some podunk town in the AHL were like, the only one we want to hook up with is John Scott. And I'm like, I'm married with 
four kids, so probably not going to happen, but thank you. <laughs> You're just watching TV, eating pizza, and big inflated ego. Well, no, I did. I would take those guys out for dinners quite a bit. So I didn't eat pizza, but I did go back and watch TV and call my wife. I don't think I told her. I should have. Maybe I should. I, don't, I can't remember if I did or not. She doesn't listen to the podcast, so we'll be safe. But all right, everybody. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you on Monday. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Dropping the Gloves with John Scott, a member of the Nation Network of Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to never miss an episode. 